So hello and welcome to the final edition of 2022 of the Cinetopia radio show and podcast. I'm Amanda, co-founder of Cinetopia and um, hosting this show. And I'm here with two regulars. Uh, so Steph Brown, Steph, how, how are you today? Yeah, I'm really good, Amanda. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk about um, um, the new releases. I think there's a lot, of, a lot of good stuff going on on Netflix and Amazon just now. So. It's always good to bring up um, bring up those films and especially when they're accessible to, to everyone just now as well. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to be back and just looking forward to the stress of the holidays being over and slightly excited for Christmas, but that's more, yeah. <laughs> that's more secondary. Um, I, and uh, we're also back with uh, Simon. Simon, how are you doing? Hi, yeah, good, thanks. Um, good to see you both again. Uh, thanks for having me back. Yeah, I'm... I'm... I'm pretty chilled about Christmas at the moment. I feel like I got everything done to kind of avoid the postal strikes. So I'm I'm in a good place. I'm just ready to, you know, crack on, watch some films, enjoy the, these fine films available on streaming. Yeah. Yes. And um, you did. We did challenge ourselves to a Christmas uh, Christmas thing, but I do think we might have to pick that back up because it seems like we didn't get through all the Christmas films uh, we planned. But um, I know that's your 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 go to thing during Christmas as well is to watch as many Christmas films as possible. And you checked out a Christmas films in Glasgow as well. Yes. Um, so we haven't watched as many bad films as as many bad Christmas films as usual this year, I think. But we've caught a few. We, we caught that one on Amazon with Asa Butterfield, um, Your Christmas or Mine. And that was just truly like a bad film, like not laughably bad, just bad. We did not enjoy it. Um, but yes, we've also been to Christmas screenings in Glasgow. So we went to see Gremlins last night at the Brigat, um, which was a kind of semi-outdoor screening in that uh, it was in a venue technically, but the venue didn't have any heating. So it was absolutely freezing. Um yeah. But a good showing for that, a good crowd, uh, all enjoying Joe Dante's classic Gremlins and uh, getting in the festive mood that way. I think they were showing Die Hard immediately afterwards, but we were too numb and too cold to to continue. Yeah, fair enough. And um, given we, I know I was thinking, oh, what a good idea outdoors, but given the weather in um, in Scotland uh, the, this this time around, um, I'm sure it was freezing, freezing, and absolutely it's not, freezing. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not, sure if you wanted to, you could have you could have screenings on uh, Queens Park Pond in the south side of Glasgow because it's completely frozen over. Exactly, but you would freeze to the pond. Like, <laughs> yes, it's it's been exceptionally cold. Um, yeah, winter, and uh, I escaped uh, about a week ago, so I'm speaking to you guys from Florida. And um, yeah, not going to rub that in. Uh, but uh, we we also uh, and in Edinburgh did uh, speaking of Gremlins and Die Hard, we did um, some fundraising screenings for Save the Filmhouse campaigns, and um, you know uh, they they did pretty well. Very warm in there actually, um, but uh, but those those films were quite popular. So thanks to all that came out and supported those different um, campaigns, and um, we'll leave the conversation around the film house out of it because it's a holiday show <laughs> to say as positive as possible it's not been a very um 
positive few weeks for uh, the um, yeah, what's going on in in the Edinburgh landscape. Heard a bit about some bids being rejected for for the film house, but I'm, I'm not. Yeah, it's not um, it's not it's not clear to many of us. So that's why we will yeah. uh, we will await the news. Um, which is a bit scary uh, in the new year. Supposedly, uh, whoever uh, bought the space uh, will be announced in some capacity in the new year, and it's not mm. looking good. So um, let's go to good things, um, which is which we're largely focusing on films that you can see online um, in the currently in December and um, various on various streaming platforms. Some of our favorites. Um, we are reviewing four films. So on Netflix, we're reviewing two films, um, Roar Othag's uh, Troll. Uh, it's a Norwegian film. Um, it's doing really, really well uh, on Netflix right now, uh, internationally. Uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, uh, which is doing very well as well. Uh, on movie, uh, Park Chan-wook's Decision to Leave, which I think won the best director at Cannes this year. So we'll be talking about that. That's on movie. And on Amazon Prime, Nikatu Jusu's Nanny. And those are the films for this December episode. Right. So the first film we're going to talk about is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Um, and Simon, uh, we know the story Pinocchio, but what makes this different? Um, tell us about this particular rendition of this tale. Uh, yeah, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is uh, a stop motion animated version of the Pinocchio story directed by Guillermo del Toro and Mark Gustafsson. Um in, in, you know, we know this story, but in short, it's set during the, uh, it's in Italy during the rise of the fascist led by Mussolini. Um, Geppetto is a carpenter who loses his son during uh, a bombing raid by uh, forces trying to suppress the uh, fascist uprising. And Geppetto carves his own wooden boy to kind of replace his son. The blue fairy comes and imbues it with some degree of life, and Pinocchio goes and has all kinds of adventures with uh, Sebastian J. Cricket, sort of standing in for Disney's Jiminy Cricket, uh, and yeah, all kinds of adventures in the circus and with a performing monkey. It's a uh, it's a fun film. It's it's I think the the main difference between this and other versions of Pinocchio is kind of Guillermo del Toro's creative sensibility which you feel infused through the whole film and um, it's got very del toro kind of monster and demon designs and the fact that it deals with the rise of fascism in italy and and the kind of uh suppression that the people felt the kind of oppressive atmosphere it's it's interesting that it deals with all that while dealing with the ideas of death and life and what it means to be to be alive it's um i thought it was a really interesting uh, version of the story yeah i agree i I really liked this as well i think that once again we kind of see how like great a storyteller del toro del toro is mm -hmm. 
kind of makes this genre bending political drama and fantasy and it kind of breathes a whole new life into the, to this fairy tale and he can always kind of make something his own and it's kind of a joy to watch i think a lot of people will know that what and um, what more can like will think what more can be done with this fable you know it's kind of a story that has essentially been told to death in media but um with del toro there's always kind of this um another angle to explore another message to drill through these kind of these different stories and i think that like um, Simon said, you know, one thing that kind of Del Toro excels at is, is political commentary and um, that goes through his films, especially when he touches on fascism and kind of that division between this um, brutal sense of reality and this crutch of, of escapism that a lot of characters hold on to. And I think because this is an animated film as well, it kind of emphasizes that sense of unreality more. And mm -hmm. it's almost the way that humanity is almost programmed to descend into these fractured ideologies. And that's kind of the biggest mystery of all. Um, and we kind of saw that theme, theme running through Nightmare Alley as well that we talked about a little while ago. And it's kind of that whole message of, you know, are we all monsters really? Is that all of our, all our true kind of regressive state? So I think that the kind of animated effect, um, the animated kind of style this film has really kind of transcends these messages quite, quite simply, but really effectively, especially emotionally. I also thought it was interesting that how much there was this carnival sort of aspect to this film, plus coming out of Nightmare Alley, which had such a, you know, massive, obviously we talked a lot about its sort of uh, hearkening back to previous films like Freaks and stuff like that. And so that, you know, like Del Toro always kind of goes back to this kind of pre you know like some pulp and also sort of you know folklore of of you know previous storytelling and 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 films as a film lover um I thought it was really epic actually you know mm -hmm. um and in a way that um you know obviously it's hard to come off of uh doing something like Pinocchio that's been done so many times and then I, actually I've not seen enough of the the ones recently but I know there was quite a few in the last couple of years as well yeah was... I feel like there's been like three this year alone yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think one before that um what was the uh, the other Italian the Italian director did that was like a live action like a couple of years before um so so a lot of a lot of competition here um but obviously it's still Toro and it's, it's, it was very effective. It was very elaborate. It was clearly, I didn't see that many making of, but you could tell the great deal of, um, you know, production value that went into this film and, uh, and, you know, and also the voices you certainly, you know, knew of and or recognized the voices and sort of, of who played the various characters as well. Yeah. I think that like, it, it's cool because it's, it is similar to obviously the kind of, the same kind of motifs that we've seen through films like Nightmare Alley with uh, Del Toro and going back to, to Pan's Labyrinth as well um, with this kind of commentary but I think it's so it's, it's so cool that kind of Del Toro in a way always has this kind of really uh, impactful message throughout, throughout all these films you know the kind of we're always going to remember the ones who don't conform um, when there's this kind of sense of kind of rigid unity um, unity in society and I think that it kind of it's really interesting how we've kind of got these these protagonists in this film like Geppetto that's really meant to be quite likable, and at the start he's not he's not really at all he's kind of torn between these kind of political and cultural divides, and he kind of believes he can mold Pinocchio into into his own ideals of what you know a child um, should be kind of based on um 
his lost son, um, Carlos. And I think that it's kind of that kind of cinema that really resonates with you because there's that kind of innocence from kind of these animated films at the core where kind of kind of that kind of emotional impact comes from. But then I think with this kind of this kind of climax at the end is kind of different from Del Toro in a way there kind of almost seems to be kind of a sense of optimism here that we don't see a lot of him in, in, with these kind of films. Yeah, it's not at all slight in its handling of emotional issues for what is ostensibly a children's fable. You know, it, it's tackling like heady themes, not just the political themes like the anti-fascism, but it's talking about death and grief and what it means to love someone. It, it's really powerful stuff that's really stuck with me uh, after watching it. Um and I did watch a making of which came on Netflix immediately after it like rolled over after the credits into this making of and the the animation work is just stunning. I, Del Toro t- took like twelve years or something planning this film out and trying to get it made, um, because I think he was partly waiting for stop motion technology and puppet technology to kind of catch up with his vision, and um, you know Del Toro's name is in the title, but credit has to go to Mark Gustafson, who's kind of the animation director, the animation co-director, um, because the animation it just looks incredible. I, I, I thought a lot of it must have been CG made to look like stop motion, but it really wasn't. A lot of it was practical puppet effects um, that just look incredible. Um, and they built, you know, different sizes of Pinocchio for the different shots, different scales. Um you know, a huge Pinocchio for when he has to interact with the tiny cricket. It's it it just looks incredible, and and it's combined with kind of Del Toro's aesthetics in a really uh, really interesting and beautiful way. Yeah, I mean, I'm very I'm I am very impressed that that is all stop motion. I could I could see that it was like a stop motion style, but it really. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have even guess that, that, you know, like, obviously I'm thinking things like Wes Anderson's sort of, you know, very, mm-hmm. very sort of um, classic way of, you know, or Wallace and Gromit kind of thing, but this feels really, really exceptional in terms of um, almost, yeah, like much more of a different kind of animation, I would have guessed, but that's in- interesting. Yeah, yeah, in agreement with the animation, it just looked it looked fantastic. The whole film, I think that a lot of stop um, stop motion um, animation does have quite a lot of controversy behind of it. People, you know, don't really think that, especially when we've got all these kind of effects of CGI. People kind of straight stay away from it. They don't think it looks great. But I think this just shows that you know, that there's there's few limitations with what you can do with stop motion if you know that's being created um, in this film. So I think it's it's really. It is really impressive, and I think Simon's right. You know, we have to um credit people behind that design and that um and that part of the that part of the filmmaking. A good cast in terms of the voice acting as well. Um, some people who are very recognisable. Ewan McGregor as the cricket is is instantly recognisable. Um, Tilda Swinton is, is the blue fairy. Uh, David Bradley does a great job as Geppetto. Um, but there are like unrecognizable people like Kate Blanchett. Uh, I didn't even know was in the film until the credits because I, I would have never guessed what character she's playing. I don't want to spoil it. Oh, okay. Don't spoil it then because I didn't know either. Um, I, yeah. And I didn't know that was Tilda Swinton, but that's, that isn't, that's interesting. 
Um, yeah, no, I have totally recognized a few, of course. And, uh, and also they they have, I suppose like big shoes to fill again, you know, this thing that redoing stuff that has been done and then Disney redoes it in and it of itself. Um, I think sometimes people say that the original Pinocchio, which by the way, is probably the film I scared me the most when I was younger, um, is one of the best, you know, was written, written up as one of the best animations ever, you know, made for years or something like that. Um, Disney, the Disney Pinocchio. Yeah. The original yeah. 1940 is, is one of the ones where people will say is, is one of the better animations, you know, ever made. Um, it's frightened me to death. <laughs> Actually, yeah, that, There's really scary bits with, uh, the big whale in particular stands out in my memory from, <laughs> from that say- original one. I was going to say when, when they, when the kids turn into the donkeys, I think that was, that was. Oh yeah. And it's all done with shadows on the wall. Yeah. Very, very scary. This one I was expecting to be dark and it was like almost what you were said. There was, you know, there's obviously the the darkness in terms of the politics, you know, the political, like, you know, background and, and, and whatnot. But, um, but there was many moments of tenderness and, redemption and you know and 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 really sweet moments as well so i i i got into the film a lot you know in terms of the story and i think it was very different and new for me you know to see it in this way yeah you don't expect the rise of fascism to be the dark points in a uh, pinocchio film but there we are well that is pinocchio and it is on netflix right now and um you can check it out if you have it So the second film we're reviewing is currently on movie. It's in movie UK and I think all over. I was on movie US when I checked it out um, here and it's Park Chanwok's decision to leave. Um, and uh, Steph, please tell us about this film. Uh, thanks, Amanda. Yeah, this is um, Park Chanwok's um, latest film, Decision to Leave. Um, a lot of people will recognize um Park Chan-wook's films um, such as Old Boy, um, more recently The Handmaiden, and um, other films such as I'm a Cyborg from the, the mid-2000s. Um, this film kind of follows um, insomniac detective um, Yang Hee-jin, Yang played by um, Park Hee-il, who follows um, aloof widow um, Song Sure, played by uh, Tang Wei. The, stor- the story begins when Song, Song, Song Sure's husband falls off a mountain. While it appears to be an accident, um, Song Sure's unaffected attitude really draws attention to the detective who begins a sleuth operation to find out if she had any involvement in his death. Um, what kind of begins is a cat and mouse style noir, kind of drifts into um, a, do- a doomed love story between the pursuer and the pursued. Um, don't want to give um, too much away there because I think that it's quite a complex film that's really kind of it's worth kind of diving into almost um, without knowing too much about it. Um, it's quite a layered experience. Um, I I think the, um, this film is, is is really worth um, is really worth going to see. I think it's a really it's a real really well created kind of layered story. Um, there's nothing really kind of um, nothing is really what it seems to be. Um, in that kind of noir fashion. Um, I think that Park Chan-wook has kind of made um, 
the relationship aspect, the focus of this film. And I think from his kind of filmography, a lot of people might be expecting more kind of violence and action here, but I think romance is a genre that he, he does very well, which we've seen from films like I'm a Cyborg in the past. And there's a real flair that he adds to these stories and a kind of deep poetry that he imbues into his writing and directing that complements this kind of um, bending, shifting narrative that kind of, kind of forebodes um, the tragedy in the end. Um, but I've, yeah, but I, I was a big fan of this. I don't know what um, other people um, thought about his latest film. Yeah, I think I think it's a really clever, uh, taut mystery film. It, it's more Hitchcockian than Chan Wook's previous work, um, because I think there's more focus on character and relationships. You know, it put me in mind of Vertigo. In, in the man kind of pursuing this uh, aloof, mysterious woman uh, kind of mystery. Um, and yeah, I, I think there's more focus on character. There's a lot of lovely character details that really build up these, particularly the two central characters, but the whole kind of supporting cast feel well-rounded and feel very real. So it's it's very much works as a character study by focusing on the people and kind of putting those people under a magnifying glass you know you get to know the detective and why he's a detective why he does the things he does what drives him what keeps him tied to his wife what is drawing him to this mysterious woman you 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 feel all that through very slight character interactions and very slight character traits that just come through through the narrative through the dialogue through the cinematography i i thought it all worked together really well and some strong performances as well that really tie tie everything together yeah i i I agree with you both completely it's definitely my favorite film of this month i'll say one of my favorite films that i've seen in the year i mean i I, I, Mm -hmm. to go through this i i'm not putting my list together (laughs) like but i think this really was a film that I think you mentioned layers there's so many layers to this that I'm, I that I'll want to go back to again and see it and um not because it's confusing but because there there's so much there and and I think that's and you know we were talking about noir and nightmare alley and stuff like that but this is like a take on noir in a new way that I haven't seen in a, in a while that I just thought was really really interesting I thought like like I, th- so I think Simon, you mentioned in terms of how you know cinematography. I think that's one of the more stunning films I've seen in a in a while. It's it's quite beautiful, but it's also in parts very funny um, and sort of amusing. And um, I think it's through a lot of the the performance and the focus of you know of of the kind of the main cop character as well, um, just kind of going through you know his emotions um, and decisions and and stuff like that really really uh took me by surprise um how much i liked the film and i'll need to investigate it more as well i think with this film um what's so good about it is the car like the main kind of characters in this film you know with them like nothing nothing's really black and white Mm. and i think it does lend itself to those kind of hitchcockian archetypes without really falling into them comfortably um, I think the whole um, kind of noir aspect does always kind of set that up and I do think that um, that is utilised to a certain extent but I think with Park John Wick he really makes these conventions his own especially in this film you can kind of see 
the, the kind of characters' complexities kind of made up all those kind of co contradictions that seem um, that, that are all there on the surface almost. You can see that um, um, Son Soray is always questioning kind of, am I, am I that wicked? And it's kind of unclear if she already already kind of knows the answer to that she kind of she sees these act that all the actions that she does in this kind of virtuous light um you can see that she kind of traces that back to her first kind of act of violence which was which is done through love without forgetting that um everything after that's kind of fulfilling her own kind of desires and her own and meeting her own ends again you have this kind of detective character that um is kind of kind of implied to be really ethically driven and then you have this kind of where it kind of blurs the line where where his kind of sleuthing for the purpose of investigation kind of becomes voyeurism for his own interests in a way. So no one, there's not really, but you know, and, and again with both those characters, you know, you kind of ask, kind of ring, kind of rings in your ears the whole film, you know, is it really all that simple though? Because there's just and um, there's different things that kind of make you question really what, what everyone's intentions are because nothing nothing really is crystal crystal clear and i and i agree with amanda though there are a lot of funny moments in this which i think really elevate the film more and give it more of those layers i kind of love the kind of rom-com nods almost to um sansa ray's character with the metal and ice cream and like stuff like that and 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 stuff with um the the funniest but i think was the chase the um cop chase um, um, with um, Jan, Jan Heijun and his partner chasing after um, chasing after this person and they all kind of collapse after having to go up so many stairs and I think all these kind of small comedic moments you could blink and miss them in a way but I think they're quite effective in distancing those characters from these kind of archetypes or that are kind of preset as well. Yeah it kind of wants to set up these, these kind of detective and femme fatale archetypes but then it very cleverly deconstructs them by by getting into who these people really are who these characters really are and and takes them away from you know the archetype of the moral perfect detective and really complicates that in an interesting way um i i think it's very innovative as well like you say amanda in terms of cinematography and framing there's some terrific shots and terrific scenes that sort of play with timelines and play with the idea of flashbacks and what character is in what position at what time. That's really interesting. I, I think the, 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 the problem for the film, uh, and this is entirely personal, is that Mubi have been doing a Park Chan-wook season. So I've watched a lot of Park Chan-wook films before this. And I think it's this, this is somewhat less complex uh, than some of his other films, somewhat more straightforward. And, um, well, I watched The Handmaiden basically right before this, and The Handmaiden is just terrific, like a, a brilliant piece of filmmaking. And I don't think this quite gets up to that level, but, you know, I don't want to disparage it. It is a very good piece of filmmaking. What I thought was also kind of cool about this film, and it's, I think that I, I quite like, obviously, when you think about noir films, you kind of go back into like 50s, 60s cinema for quite a lot of it. And I think that, I quite like the attention to detail in the sense that it kind of touches really cleverly on the digital age. And um, there's a lot of kind of focus on people using smartphones a lot of the film and kind of mm. how, you know, there's very much that thing that those connotations with noir cinema that's all about, you know, deceit and like, the hidden parts of people. And it's kind of a great juxtaposition, 
juxtaposition in the sense that everyone's digital footprint is now the new fingerprint. So the kind of notion of that kind of that element of privacy in today's world is, is sort of non-existent. And that's like one of the kind of key, the key like um, drives that kind of influence, influence the climax in a way. So I thought that was quite, quite clever to kind of bring um, kind of noir film into kind of modernity and stuff. I quite like that twist. Yeah, I mean, exactly like kind of this new idea of neo neo noir or something, you know, in the in the modern era that, you know, again, you know, when sometimes you're hearkening back to like, like Del Toro's idea of noir would be like very much going back in time. And this is this is definitely a modern era. I also thought it was really interesting because I heard um, a Q and A where there was a there is a song that is in the film a, a couple times and it's quite um, important. And um, and it's a uh, it's, it's a song that in Korea many people would know of. Uh, you know, it, it was very famous. And that was literally the inspiration for the film. And and, um, and it was in part you know something around this idea of having a detective film, you know, because of what it's called, or I think it's called the mist or fog or something like that. And then, um, and then, it, but it, the, 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 the stories of the, the lyrics are very romantic. So he mixed those two genres together. And I just thought, you know, just somebody who has kind of the ability to, to come up with such a fascinating tale by just a simple sort of inspiration of a song like that. And, and this is what he came up with. Um, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think like, like Steph said, uh, it's, it's a very modern mystery. I, I think the use of technology, like you say, the use of mobile phones, for example, as kind of pivotal in putting together the narrative and the mystery really works very well. Um, he, he kind of recognizes the anxiety that you can get from a text conversation and, and portrays that on screen in a really interesting way. Um, and it made me think of, there's a texting scene in uh, Olivia Sayers' personal shopper that's super tense. Uh, and this has another texting scene that is just as tense that really worked uh, well for representing that kind of how we use technology today and how it forges or doesn't forge those kinds of relationships between us. So true, because I, I always often think how, yeah, how how can text be sort of, you know, shown on screen mm. in the same way that like it can be so misread and 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 this is kind of a, a textbook of of how to, <laughs> if that, if directors are looking for uh, said. Yeah, so Decision to Leave is on movie right now. Uh, I think we all agree it's worth the look um, and uh, maybe a second look as well. So check it out. So the third film we're reviewing is Nanny. Um, and Simon, tell us about this film. Uh, yeah, Nanny is now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, it is the directorial debut of Nikiata Juzu, uh, and it follows uh, a Senegalese immigrant uh, living in New York City uh, named Aisha, played by Anna Diop. She gets a job working for uh, working as a nanny for a white family in uh, Manhattan. So she's spending a lot of time 
going to and from her apartment and this this place where this uh she's looking after this young white girl uh she's also communicating with her son back in senegal and raising enough money to to bring him over to america uh so they can kind of live the american dream together um but as the story moves forward as as she gets more involved with this this white family red flags start to appear cracks start to appear in the relationship and she begins to experience kind of visions of a presence visions and hallucinations that suggest that that all is not right with her world with her relationships um so it's kind of an effective thriller horror i guess you'd call it a a, a modern horror film following the kind of african experience the immigrant experience of of this young woman in uh, in america yeah i really i really like this film i think that um in the last decade or so kind of the, there's been a lot of filmmakers exploring kind of the horror genre and they kind of it keeps getting more inventive and creative i think which is great to see and you know, I don't think we'll ever arrive at a time where the genre is on a living playing field in award season, but you know, I don't really think that matters. Mm. Um, I think I really I think that for a lot of people that may have seen um his house on on Netflix, this this film kind of reminded me of that a little bit. I think there's some a few thematic similarities. Um I think there is kind of a way that the horror as a genre can be really powerful at kind of capturing um these stories about dramas associated with themes like migration and, and kind of adjustment and the way that kind of leftover feelings of guilt can kind of manifest into very kind of internal spiritual hauntings mm-hmm. um, I think and I and I really like I think it's really interesting about this film that it's not really it's not really invested in kind of creating any jump scares there's not like faces coming out the walls it's which I think is kind of a triumph in many ways because it's introspective and it manages to show how these kind of small microaggressions in life and these small manipulations can kind of fracture can really have kind of a big um, impact on kind of frank fracturing like a sense of identity for people and a sense of belonging and i think it's i think it works well because it's like um does shouldn't believe it's kind of a character study with whole like with horror elements around it we're kind of watching this character who is already displaced like she's in a different country on her own and and the things that she needs to kind of break through those barriers around her, you know, aren't being provided and she doesn't kind of have any sense of stability. Um, she's um, caring for a child that isn't hers and while being like unable to see her own, see her own. And um, she's kind of being under this constant exploitation of this family that she's equally dependent on and can't really leave behind at the moment. So I think that um, when we see her kind of have these experiences um, when she, when she's experiencing kind of floods in her room, um, being pulled underwater by um, some sort of creature, there is this kind of distinct rationality behind that in a, in a strange way, you know, mm-hmm. with with what what she's going through. And I think the performance from Anna Anna Jope really kind of brought these these complexities to, to life to life as well. I think her performance was mm-hmm. really fantastic in this film. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I guess I'm not a horror fan and or so I do not have much knowledge about horror films um so don't really know how to comment on it compared to other films um and also maybe that kind of 
got me a little nervous about wanting it just because that's just not my genre. Um, but I didn't find it that scary. And I think I've, I also thought that it was a psychological thriller as much and, mm. and sort of had great, a great connection to it in terms of its setting being New York and, and sort of, like you said, these microaggressions that are so like part of living in a city, but also, you know, people coming in and, and migrating and coming into a, to a new sort of established way of the way that like a city like that uh, works and, and sort of what you're forced to do, um, you know, when you, when you're making it in a city like that, um, it's, it, it, it works really, really well. So if you had said psychological thriller, I probably would have been more likely to have watched it, but I'm glad I did. And I think it was a great, great film. I was really impressed by the film entirely, um, and, and enjoyed, enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. I, I think you mentioned microaggressions, Steph. And I think what the film does really well is show those microaggressions of a young black woman in a predominantly white community, predominantly white environment shows those microaggressions really well. And in a lot of ways, more subtly gets across those red flags than, uh, say, Barbarian, the horror film Barbarian, or even Get Out. It, it's more subtle in representing uh, her discomfort uh, and how the white woman, for example, is oblivious to it and doesn't acknowledge or ignores that discomfort. You know, we see the the man uh, of the white family. He he makes his living photographing he's capturing the pain of black people but keeping a distance through his lens and it's obvious that she's uncomfortable with those photos but it's never stated outright it's just left to you to to figure it out to to see it through her expressions but the white family never see it they never acknowledge um never acknowledge that i also like the way that this film kind of digs at the american dream because i think it's i think it's really interesting how it does it because they're obviously you know, many louder moments that kind of meander through Asia's journey, turbulent journey among, you know, the human rights violations that are quite clearly attached to that. I like the way that the kind of real, like the removal of the kind of rose-tinted glasses also kind of falls on this this perceived wealthy wealthy family that have this optimum kind of vision of privilege and wealth. And the mum, Amy, seems to kind of overcompensate and kind of relate every detail of how, how great her life is, unbelievably so. It becomes almost like a show um, rather than the reality, because we, as the film develops, you see the kind of cracks there in our marriage um, and our working life. And then this relationship with her daughter that's hanging by a thread, but in a way kind of her own sense of this privilege makes her unable to really relate or empathize with Aisha at all, despite her own kind of perceived notions of the society unfairness that's against her as well that she can't move past and I kind of I kind of found that interesting as well it's kind of like this um these kind of layers again where um there, these kind of layers again of people that of this kind of family that's meant to represent this dream as such that, that that's falling apart for them as mm. well in a way but they but they kind of see themselves as much more outside of that failing vision than someone like Isha, who's kind of who's kind of migrated over and it's much more obvious for her where the hurdles remain rather than kind of that kind of thing of not being able to see kind of internal um in their own kind of space I don't know I just found a really interesting contrast there I don't know if it was just me yeah I think it's it is very much responding to this you know the the false 
sort of idealism of the American dream. I think it was, it's very, very New York specific as well, um, where I think you have kind of a class structure that happens like within blocks, you know, or so, so, and, and sort of this idea of commuting in and out of certain areas and stuff like that, that's, it's very, very particular to, to that city. And um, just because there's massive wealth uh, differences and people who live there. Um, and I think it actually really speaks to what it is to live in New York as well, as much as, you know, as a met, like the, like you said about the American dream, I think it, it really does it well. And I, I, I would catch something. I sometimes I feel like if, if it wasn't authentically sort of speaking to that experience, but, uh, but it, it, it is, it is, and it is um, like spot on in terms of sort of dialogue and just sort of like scenarios and whatnot. Um, so I think it's incredibly astute. It gets a lot across about the different communities that can live side by side in a big city like New York as well. Because you've got, uh, he's working for this white family, but they're entirely separated from the community of uh, black and African immigrants who, who are, she also uh, plugs into and interacts with, but they feel entirely different. You know, they're the, a kind of genuine sense of relief in the dialogue and in the character when she's around other black people, whether they're African or they're black Americans, um, it, you can feel the relief you can feel her being more relaxed that all comes through in the performance which is terrific you can just feel her being more relaxed than the tension that we always feel around the uh the white family and other white people um you you've mentioned remy weeks is his house I, I thought there was a strong affinity with that as well but it also reminded me of there's an episode of atlanta uh in the latest season not the latest season, actually, the third season, um, where there's a white family who get a nanny, get a black African nanny, um, and the white parents become worried that the nanny is making the kid too black. I thought there were elements of that in kind of how concerned the white woman is with her kid eating spicy food. Um, you know, she, she's concerned about the kid eating the right kinds of food and assimilating too much with 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 that kind of uh black experience that isn't the perfect white experience of 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 the kind of america portrayed there i think the only thing that i kind of didn't like about the film and this is more of a personal thing i think with me is i think it was just a scene um where asia's kind of and and they the wealthy people's apartment on her own um with um their child and she's kind of experiencing a really kind of aggressive trans like um hallucinator hallucinator experience and then she kind of comes to and she's holding a knife and there's suddenly blood everywhere and it looks like she, there was almost an implied almost attack um mm -hmm. on the person's child and i i think that as someone that quite likes horror films and has kind of seen them throughout the years, you know, it'd be difficult not to know that it's kind of got a, quite a problematic history with its representation of, um, and I know this film isn't distinctly speaking about mental illness, but there's obviously con connotations there. And I think that, you know, we don't want to descend into the kind of tropes from the 60s of the kind of mad women apartment era. You know, I think that there's relevance in those films artistically, but it's not something that I think we want to necessarily resurrect 
um, when we're talking about modern horror. I think that was, but I, it's quite a small detail. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not something that's stark. But I think for me, it just it felt almost out of place, uh, message-wise. Yeah, the only really element of the film that didn't work for me is a kind of lack of cohesion between the film's different elements. I, I think the kind of background horror uh, that the character that Aisha is experiencing doesn't really cohere with the kind of discomfort with the white family. Um, and this is kind of a long term over the entire course of the film. I, I don't think they come together at the end particularly well. Um, and I really like the, like we've talked about, I've really liked the microaggression, the discomfort, um, but I don't think it coheres particularly well with the horror and what ultimately turns out to be the reason for that horror. Mm. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. And also just sort of thought that scene was a bit confusing, <laughs> like in, in general, but maybe that was just me, uh, again, not not very well versed in horror films whatsoever. <laughs> I avoid uh, just for my own, yeah, uh, sensitivity. Um, but yes, uh, so Nanny is currently on um, Amazon Prime. And um, I think overall, uh, we think you should check it out. Okay, and our final film. Uh, we're on for the for December. We are going back to um, uh, Netflix uh, for Troll, which was directed by Roar Uthag, um, and I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. Um, and a Norwegian filmmaker, uh, also really well known um, Norwegian filmmaker that I've not seen any of his stuff before. But um, this troll has done quite well on Netflix, and I'm not, you know, I'm not sure whether or not on, you know, in, in the cinemas as well. But largely, the story is as one would expect around um, a giant troll. Um, but it's uh, around a, a father and a daughter. Uh, as a young girl, um, there's Nora and her father, and her father kind of tells her a little bit about folklore in terms of trolls who live in the mountains and and knows a lot about that. And then we fast forward to um, the modern day where Nora is now a paleontologist and um, some disturbances have happened, uh, started to happen in the Dovrum mountains. And it uh, turns out uh, that it is a troll. And so they go back uh, to talk to uh, Tobias, who is Nora's father, um, who is seems to have been become kind of a hermit. Um, you know, and and is is very affected by this mythology, um, which doesn't sort of have any scientific sort of back backing, as well as Nora's part of a, a larger group of people, including Prime Minister's assistant and the military. So how are they going to solve um, this troll who's been woken up and 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 is and it's causing a lot of havoc on on Norway and is about to head into Oslo. So this is a, what would was like a Godzilla meets um uh yeah it's like a Godzilla film for with a troll. Uh how else would you guys describe it? Yeah I I, I think it's entirely derivative as a kind of monster film but tied yeah. into Norwegian mythology, Norwegian folklore. Um and I think that's fine as long as you know going in that this is like by the numbers monster movie um 
I'm a bit of a sucker for a monster movie. I like a big kaiju. I like a Godzilla. I like a, a Cloverfield monster. Um, so I was just, yeah, entirely suckered in by this and 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 really enjoyed it. Um, I, I think while Netflix have the money, they should just give that money to every country so every country can make their own monster movie <laughs> where a monster trashes their capital city. I, I'd be happy to watch all of those. I, I would say the I I was really impressed, uh like in, maybe like you said, the 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 budget, but um I thought that looked better than the Marvel movie you guys had me watch uh a couple <laughs> months ago, you know. So I was really impressed by just the the effect of the troll. I, I believed I believed that the scary troll was was coming upon, you know. Um so if I had seen it in a big cinema, I'd probably be even more impressed. Um, but yeah. I yeah, this film I kind of I kind of had to be honest quite low expectations going in, um. But you know, to be honest, I actually did find it quite entertaining. Like, I it's not a film that takes itself seriously, really. It this is recycled cinema. I don't think we were yeah. really ever under under the illusion that it was anything else like that. And I think this is the intention of the film going in. It kind of thrives on this bizarre overuse of cliches. Um, that kind of make up this kind of blockbuster feature but with you know with Troll we're more in B-movie territory which I think is okay and I think the tropes of their kind of they, I, they're quite humorous like, I, there's this kind of tongue-in-cheek feel and how these moments come out we have this age-old classic bit of the old wise man who everyone thinks is crazy but he's actually just very wise but and then predictably dies uh, while giving one more note of wisdom behind and these kind of quotes sound like that. I think they're they're pretty much uh they're pretty much the same as what Jeff Goldblum kind of says in Jurassic Park, but they're kind of mm -hmm. the, the words are changed around, so it's definitely not that you know. But then you and then we've got this kind of hacker character who kind of saves the day in a very small amount of time, um, by hacking into a government missile code or something, um, which is done through a laptop in less than five minutes, and then you've got obviously of course the kind of unhinged official who kind of just ends up wanting to blow up Oslo anyway even though there's kind of an interaction plan in place and then that's so but I think you know what that's kind of why to me B-movies are great they're not trying to kind of open up any new dialogues they're mm -hmm. built off on those eccentric narratives and they kind of amplify the absurdity along the way so I think if you're looking for a complex mind-bending that like thriller you're going to be disappointed but you're going to take this kind of film for what it is you know you at worst you'll be prepared for it not necessarily being your cup of tea um but i do agree with the special effects i think they were done really well overall i think the troll creature thing looked pretty impressive and i think that had that obvious like towering quality that seemed to kind of blend in really well with the kind of background design it wasn't kind of one of those awkward um things that you've seen a lot of kind of bc movies where it's quite clearly been shot in a completely different place and then just put in and it looks really awkward and I think it's done really well um the one thing I didn't care for is I don't really understand why the folklore element was really put in the film it wasn't really mentioned enough or explored enough to be all that relevant I think we could have had um this kind of film for what it was without even mentioning much about folklore I think it had to be revisited more to be all that relevant yeah. Maybe it needed more um, because I, I would have been more interested in it if it was more for, and I'm not even that into, 
you know, Lord of the Rings kind of stuff, but I would definitely have been more interested to learn more about it just because it would have been something different than, you know, like a Jurassic Park Godzilla film. So maybe, maybe we needed it a bit more. I, you know, I liked the concept that, you know, the, the man who was seen as crazy because he lived in the woods, you know, like knew better than, you know, than, than, than the other, but, but uh, it could have been explored perhaps a little bit more. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I, I really liked the folklore elements. I felt they added a lot to what was otherwise, uh, you know, like we said, a thin derivative monster film. I, I liked taking the folklore seriously, but I could have done with more of it. So I, I like the fact that, you know, uh, the troll can smell the blood of an Englishman, uh, smell the blood of a Christian rather. Uh, and taking that seriously is kind of fun, you know, and it, it can't stand the sound of church bells. You know, that's an old folklore element that they use for kind of a big set piece. I like that. I, I thought that was good. And, um, you know, trolls can't be out in direct sunlight. Well, it turns out it was out in cloud whenever we saw it in sunlight. Okay, sure. Fine. <laughs> But, you know, I, I kind of like that taking it seriously and building uh, interesting bits around that. Um, but, yeah, it, it's like Steph says, whenever a character is introduced, you can write exactly what's going to happen to them. You, you know exactly what's going to happen because you've seen this kind of film before. Um, so as long as you know that going in, I think it's fine, perfectly serviceable. And I think if I could be correct, I'm not giving anything away. It does seem like there, the end did suggest there might be a troll too coming your way. <laughs> I think, so. yeah, they've got plans for sequels. Um, yeah, it says on Wikipedia they've got plans to make a sequel, maybe two, depending on how they do. Um, <laughs> I don't imagine it'll be like the last Troll 2 movie from the 90s. I think we've, we've stepped up probably more budgetary-wise there. But yeah, I do. I think that what just kind of, kind of, I didn't really get from the film was it kind of built up to be mostly about folklore, which is what I was most excited about. Mm. And it was kind of dropped more and more as the yeah. film kind of went on. And I thought that, yeah, I kind of was expecting the film to kind of be around all this folklore. And it kind of took kind of more of a backseat and became more of a derivative monster flick. I think that if it kind of went down that route, it could, that's where it kind of could have stood out and set itself apart from kind of same kind of Godzilla-esque movies that we see all the time. Yeah, I need to watch Troll Hunter again, um, which is a kind of Norwegian found footage film about trolls emerging. I haven't mm. seen it in a long time, but I think that's takes a more serious um more folkloric look at uh troll monsters um but like i say i need to watch that again uh and you can watch troll uh not to be um confused with trolls um on netflix right now um look it up if you if you want to have a monster a norwegian version of a monster flick uh this christmas season so yes we went through uh four films uh currently you can watch on uh, various streaming uh 
of things if that's what and also we uh you know there's plenty of christmas films we you can check out and let us know what you think um what is your cinema plans there's also going to be some big films i think coming out in the next couple weeks um in the cinemas as well so are you guys looking forward to something during the christmas season that's really you're excited to see I think this, I think while I've kind of got the break to recharge, I'm going to um, take in sort of what I've missed this year. I think this has just been a year that I've not had much time to see a lot. And there's been, I know there's been a lot of great, great stuff that's come out just with transitioning jobs and stuff. Like there's been other pressures, but I think that I want to take the most of the, the time off to really kind of catch up on what's out. I think especially with platforms like movie they kind of they keep you up to date and they kind of fill you in so I think that browsing catalogs like that is going to be definitely a good way to to, to bring in the holidays yeah I was going to say the same I, I'm just feel like I'm going to be playing catch up with um, movies I didn't catch first time around so just in the past week I've watched uh, The Northman the Robert Eggers film and didn't think much of that it's fine that I missed it. Um, and Barbarian, the horror film, um, which I didn't catch in cinemas, but is now on uh, Disney Plus, and I really enjoyed that one. I haven't seen Barbarian, but I saw The Northman and agree that was not my my favorite film. Um, so disappointed. But... Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> yes, and yeah, uh, I I agree with you. Movie is something I've had for a couple months. I mean, sorry, for a couple of years and I just never get around to watching everything that's that's available on on that. For me, I have not seen I don't think any television um, in the last year. I've been so busy um, and, and as any films that I see, I often see for for the show. And, um, you know, so so I'm always prioritizing films. So but there's some films, there's some TV shows. You've mentioned a couple even on this on the show that I've not yet seen Everyone's talking about White Lotus, not seen it. Yeah. Um, so I, I think if if anybody has any recommendations of TV that I've missed in the last four years, um, that <laughs> might be something I'm doing. I definitely, I think the more people that bring this up on the show and I haven't seen it, I've seen little bits of it and I've liked what I've seen of that, but I really want to I really want to take on Atlanta. I think that that's something that seems to be um, really hyped up so I'm going to jump on on that train I think I think that's going to be one of my next binge series yeah I'll, I'll say Atlanta I'll always shout out Atlanta it is so good I, I think it's genuinely one of the best things on tv at the moment um it's just so inventive you know it, it does a disservice to it to say it's the new Twin Peaks but it's got a kind of weird vibe like 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 Twin Peaks but it is entirely its own thing um yeah, I, I need to catch White Lotus because I haven't caught that. And on Guillermo del Toro, I wanted to watch Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities on Netflix because that's kind of uh, short films by prominent directors. Um, and I've caught a few of them. They've been pretty good, but I hear the really good ones are later in the season, so I need to to, to catch up on that. Great. And I all those all sound like the 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 kind of uh, week that I will be having um, binge watching TV that I've missed. And I also really miss, to be honest, I'm in the states. I miss 
really bad um commercials and with the American <laughs> commercials are like really funny and also it's a it's a weird thing to 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 be back uh, watching commercials but um yeah so so I wish you all a wonderful uh tv and film filled uh you know Christmas season and hopefully um relaxing getting a break from what was a very intense year I think uh and uh I know it was for me and I know it was, uh, well, in this, in our cultural landscape here in Scotland. Um, and hopefully next year we'll bring much better things. Yeah, hopefully. Um, happy Christmas to everyone, you know, uh, happy holidays. Hope everyone has a good, uh, good, that break between Christmas and New Year. Just fill it with films, fill it with films and TV. Yeah, I think, I hope everyone gets a, a good time to actually have a proper break. I know that's not a luxury that everyone gets to have at this time of yeah. year, um, but I hope everyone kind of makes space and time for themselves. So I think it has just been too much of a heavy, heavy year to kind of keep going on the gas. Like, um, take, take a break, definitely, if you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And if you can, if you can, go to the cinema as well, because, uh, yeah, it's great to see these films in the cinema and support your local cinemas uh, as much as you can. Um, so I wishing everybody a very merry, happy holidays and um, happy new year. And we'll see you in the new year.